Let's turn to John chapter 2, if you will. We're going to pick up in verse uh, 12 and go through, Lord willing, 22. This um, place in which Jesus cleanses the temple, a very familiar event in the in the Gospels. And um, let's pray before we open up, or as we open up God's Word. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we're so grateful again to have this wonderful time to be able to open up your Word and see you. I love that song, More About Jesus. Um, uh, and as we open up your book, hearing and seeing you in every line and making each faithful saying mine. And that is the privilege we have, is that... Um, we are joint heirs with you, and as such, this is your word, and it feeds us, and it makes us wise into salvation, and it also is used by you in sanctification, and sanctification is strengthened by uh, and empowered by our knowledge of a future glorification, which motivates us in our consecration to lay down our lives as living sacrifices because of the truth that we have right here. And this is truth that um, is, uh, this is reality. This is the way, this is the way things are. The way they, um, um, and we place complete confidence in your word because we place our complete confidence in you. And the reason we do that is not because of anything to do with us, but because of what we have come to know and understand and and appreciate about you that you um, are truth you are life and you are the way <coughs> and not only do you not lie you cannot lie and um, so thank you Lord and uh, um, what appears to be the confusing and certainly disoriented world that we live in we have vision and clarity that we wouldn't otherwise have and it is all because of Jesus and the Word that we have that con- that concerns Him. He's not just one of the subjects of the Bible. He is the subject of the Bible. And Lord, help us to look up, in and out, and consistently resist the temptation that we always face to do the opposite, to look out, in and up. And then we wind up using Your Word and abusing Your Word uh, as we've seen very obvious examples of that, and then some that are not so obvious and subtle. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to be um, misled by our appetites and our our indwelling sin that we still deal with and wrestle with until we get to future glory with you. When our positional uh, our position and our practice will be one. In the meantime, you're growing us. And I pray you'll use today in this time in your word to do just that as you bring glory to your great name. In the sweet and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, let's uh, read from John chapter 2. We'll back up to 11 as we finish up here with the account of Jesus turning the water in the wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. That event uh, is recorded for us and then summarized in verse 11 
concerning it. It says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. And after this, He went down to Capernaum, He, His mother, His brothers, and His disciples, and they did not stay there many days. And now when the Passover of the Jews was at hand, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when He had made a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And He said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to Him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But He was speaking of the temple of His body. Therefore, when He had risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this to them, and they believed the Scriptures and the Word which Jesus had said. Well, once again, as we come from our study for the last three or four weeks of uh, looking at Jesus and His first sign that He performed in His public ministry on the... Uh, at the end of this recreation week. And you remember we looked at the creation week in Genesis and then now in John we see the seven days that are recorded for us that ended in a marriage, just like the seven days of creation ended in a marriage where Adam and Eve were brought together by the Lord and that pictures for us certainly the Gospel. And then at the end of um, uh, this recreation week, there's a wedding and Jesus is there And we're reminded once again that something that we need to constantly be reminded of, and that is John's theme here. That his reason for writing this gospel is that we would know that Jesus is God who became man. And uh, and that He's truly God and truly man. uh, The person of Jesus Christ. And as such, when He's here at this wedding as God, He's flying over the event in eternity. And He's looking at this event from the lens through which we could look at it. And that's why He says what He says to His mother, that my time has not yet come. He said, this marriage and all marriage is given to picture the ultimate wedding that's going to take place at the end of the age when I am joined together and my church is joined together with me, my bride. Uh, and the dowry, the purchase price that I'm going to pay for my bride will be my life, my blood. And the festival joy that we have to look forward to where the wine will not run out, and wine is always a picture, or often a picture in the Scripture of joy, celebration, happiness, uh, will come. And so he's thinking way above where they are. And that's what the Bible does for us. 
is it brings us up to see God's eye view of things because God doesn't just have a perspective. The way God sees things is not a perspective. The way God sees it is the way it is. It's not just His take on events. It's what they are. It's reality. And instead of us trying to get Him to condescend to our view, we need to be lifted up to His. His ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, are His thoughts and ways above ours. And you can see that play out all throughout the Gospel of John in particular. And this is no exception when you come to the cleansing of the temple. Today, God willing, and we want to approach this the way that we want to approach Scripture and be reminded that we go up, in, and out, and not out, in, and up. Another way of saying that is is that we look at Revelation, we look this way to illustration, and we go that way for application. Same thing. And we want to study the Bible that way. The Bible is written that way. We don't want to see it from our perspective and then shove it up into some God context. We want to see it from God and then let it flow down to, uh, to, to earth and apply. This So today, God willing, we're going to look at the context of what's really happening here and how it fits in to the other Gospels what's really happening here, and we want to use the next two weeks, it's going to take us two or three weeks probably to do this, to trace from the Scriptures the eternal priesthood of Jesus. Because what He's confronting here in this temple cleansing is a corrupt priesthood. A priesthood corrupted by um, sin, by Rejecting Him. And in this event, you'll remember, and you've read before, that there is another temple cleansing in the Synoptic Gospels. And some have made the case, or tried to make the case, that this cleansing is the same one. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how anybody could draw that conclusion. I, I'm thoroughly convinced there were two temple cleansings. And uh, this was the first one. This was at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The other one clearly fits in to the end of His public ministry just before His crucifixion. So we got three and a half years or so that separate these two cleansings. And the way it fits in the narrative is very strategic, and we'll talk about that. And we'll look at the priesthood and we'll look at why He did what He did and that it was prophesied that He would do what He did here. (coughs) But let's bore into the context first and see what's going on here so we can better understand from God's eye view what's what's happening. We have Jesus. He's just coming off of the uh, end of that first recreation week, new creation week. And He moves now from uh, Galilee to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be the epicenter of where all the problems (laughs) He encounters, which ultimately wind up in false accusation and murder. For God, it was sacrifice. For the Jews, it was murder. Uh, But of our Lord. So He makes His way into Jerusalem. He's got some of His disciples with Him already. Uh, and then he comes in, he's got his family with him as well. He comes in and strategically and sovereignly designed, he comes in at the time of Passover. Now, 
This is the first of three Passovers that are mentioned in John's Gospel. The next one comes in John chapter 6, verse 4. The next one comes in John chapter 11, verse 35. And you'll remember that, of course, the Passover was a celebration feast celebrating the liberation, the redemption, of and the freedom of 430 years of Egyptian bondage for the children of Israel where God got them out to get them in to the Promised Land. And you'll remember that the Passover was when the death angel passed over and spared in judgment all the nation of Israel. But the sign that they needed, or the the uh, the way that the death angel knew to pass over them, was that the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts and the lintel of each Jewish home. And of course, that is a picture of Jesus, the Passover lamb. And so this is a celebration of what has now about to come to fruition, and that is the Passover lamb is going to be all offered. They're looking forward to uh, in celebration to what happened. We look back. We'll do that at the end of this service. In the Old Testament, it was the Passover. In the New Testament, it's communion. It's the Lord's Supper. And we look back at the uh, substitutionary atoning death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The Passover, and then immediately following that would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jerusalem at this time, you remember would be teeming with people from all throughout the Roman Empire, Jews who would come in and make a pilgrimage at Passover time to come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And of course, the center of all that celebration would have been the temple, the center of worship that pictures for us Jesus in all the glory and all the elements of the temple. There are estimates that would have been as many as 2 million people in Jerusalem at the time to celebrate this what is the most was the most the foremost the the pinnacle of uh, of Jewish um, feasts and um, from traveling such a long distance it would have been impractical to bring your own sacrificial animals with you uh, first of all that's hard to do when you're walking and traveling. And secondly, they have to be unblemished animals. And they wouldn't probably maintain that, uh, especially when they're coming from long distances. So as a matter of practical accommodation, nothing wrong with this, but as a matter of practical accommodation, what they would do is when they got there and in temple worship, in order to make the sacrifice, um, they would sell qualified, quote-unquote, animals uh, to to perform sacrifice. But in Jesus' day, by the time what's, what was uh, formed as an, a practical exercise to help people out in worship of the one true God, uh, over time was corrupted. In that, they would start selling the animals at uh, inflated prices. And so this is what's going on in the temple at the time. It even got to the point where the priest, it didn't matter. Even if you brought a sacrificial animal and the priest has to check it out, at this time, none of them passed the test. They would find something wrong with every one of them to put somebody in a position of having to buy one of theirs. And so, I mean, you're just out of luck. And so if you have the only show in town and this is the only place you can get, you can charge what you want if you're ungodly. 
And that's exactly what was going on. And these people were being pillaged financially. Secondly, as well, when they talk about the money changers, every Jewish male 20 years of age or older had to pay an annual temple tax. This was spelled out in Exodus chapter 30, verses 13 and 14. Spoken of again in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. But the issue is, is that tax could only be paid using a special temple coin. Uh, because they were the 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 uh, the silver was more pure, and so um, they would come in and they would have all their coins, Roman coins, with them. But it wasn't acceptable payment. So what they would have to do is exchange what they had for that temple coin. And as you can imagine, over time, what was just like with the sacrifices, a practical accommodation was corrupted, and greed set in and the priests would once again charge um, excessive prices to make the exchange. There again, there's no other show in town. They've got a monopoly on the market just like they have a monopoly on the sacrificial animal market. You don't have any alternative and so they would charge exorbitant fees sometimes as much as one half of what you're exchanging for. Um, And so... Uh, our Lord walks in there knowing full well what's going on. As a matter of fact, when He said, why do you turn my Father's house into a, uh, a place of business, that word is translated from a word that we get the word bazaar from. A, 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 a place like a flea market. It's what they had made out of the temple. Can you imagine? You remember the temple was divided into places where only Jews could go, then only women could go. The women, uh, Jewish women, and then they had the outer court, which was called the court of the Gentiles. And that court, based on parallel package passages in the Gospels, was the place where this was taking place. So, in the Gentile court, now that'll become important in just to, in, while we're looking at this. Maybe not today, but when we go look at it, God willing, in future messages on this, that'll become very important. But that's where it was happening. And our Lord comes in there. And of course, sees what's going on and is enraged by it. Enraged by it. Now, he never physically hurt anyone. He was like a sheep going to the slaughter. As a matter of fact, the Bible's careful here in that <coughs> he brandishes a whip of cords <coughs> made for, we can assume, corralling the animals in there. He puts that cord together and he drives the animals out with the cord. There's no indication that he touched any human being. He overturned their tables. And then with the doves even, he didn't release the doves out into the air where they couldn't get them back. He just said, you remove them. Keep them in the cage. I'm not going to, you're not going to lose your doves. And he said, but I want you to take them away. You get them out of here. You get them out of here. And so our Lord, Jesus meek and mild, is coming into the temple. And yes, he's meek and mild. But he's also, and let's never lose sight of this, judge. He's judge. He's judge. The Father has committed all judgment to the Son. The Bible says later on in John chapter 5. He's judge. So tragically enough, what began as a service to the people to accommodate worship degenerated into exploitation and usury. The condition of the temple 
was a vivid indication of the spiritual condition of the nation. Their religion was a dull routine presided over by worldly-minded men, priests, whose main desire was to exercise authority and get rich. Not only had they run out of wine at the wedding, but the glory had departed from the temple. And Jesus was rightfully, righteously indignant about it. Indignant about it. So who goes in there and he takes charge? Now the curious thing about this is there would have been a contingent of temple police here to maintain order. And we don't see anything about or hear anything about them arresting him or charging him with anything or stopping him. Matter of fact, the Roman garrison, um, the guard over these pesty Jews, was nearby. They don't do a thing. They're not summoned. They probably were amused by it, thinking they deserve it. And when they approach him, the reason they approach him and question him about his actions is because they saw authority in him. So much authority that the second temple cleansing, that was their question to him. Who by what authority have you doing this and who gave you this authority? You know why they said that? Not because of the actions, but the authoritative way in which He did them. So in essence, this was a miracle. It was a miracle. They didn't arrest Him and put a stop to it when He overturned the first table. And somebody didn't summon somebody over, but He was doing it in such authority and He had such authority. There was a supernatural pall over the place for Him to do what He did because this guy is in charge. The temple courts where the Gentiles would be able to go and pray is where this is happening. So where people should be able to pray and invite in and be able to see and hear the truth about why this temple exists, what its purpose is, and what cost worship is going to come by Instead of finding out the truth, they go in and what are they but exploited. You know, when you read this, you have to pause and reflect on the fact that not much has changed, has it? Think of the charlatans that take advantage of people under the name of Jesus and uh, pilfer people's money and see the gospel as an opportunity to exploit and line their pockets. It's almost always the case that either one of both of these things are true of a false teacher. They have a money problem and they have an immorality problem. They have a morality problem. They either have a morality problem and may not have a money problem or have a money problem and not a morality problem, but usually it's both. You can see it every time. Sooner or later it comes out. And buddy, it was on full display here because he exposed it. You remember Jesus said, here's why the world hates me. Very simple. Let me tell you why the world hates me. By the way, the world hates me. Jesus says that. Here's why the world hates me. I'll make it very clear to you. Why? Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. That's the last thing that somebody who's living in sin wants is for somebody to turn the light on. And he didn't just turn the light on. He is the light. So here's the priesthood that's been corrupted to this point at this level. Now, there's so many things to this. There's so many layers to this. I just sit there thinking, I was just praying, Lord, how do we even approach this? Because there's so many nuggets in here. 
And this is another illustration of what we've talked about before that's true of the Gospel of John, and that is that it is shallow enough for a child to wave into, but deep enough for an elephant to drown in. Well, this is another another proof of that, another explanation of that, another example of that. But we have a corrupt priesthood, and I think that might be the focus that we need to take this morning. Corrupted priesthood. Okay, now... When Jesus comes in there and He says, You have made my Father's house a house of merchandise, my Father. In Jewish thinking, when He's called the Son of God, they marked Him out as, that's blasphemy. Because to be called the Son of God means that you're saying you're God the Son. So, they wouldn't have seen it the way we see it. Well, that's just my Son. No, no. We're one and the same. And when He made those claims, those claims, they marked Him out as a blasphemer worthy of death, capital punishment, for such claims. So when he said, my father's house, he's equating himself with God right there. But it was a reminder both of his deity and his messiahship because he was the loyal son purging the father's house of impure worship. And that's an action that prefigures what he will do one day when he comes again. And that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. This is a preview of coming attractions. Because zeal, zeal for worship in this city, on this mount, on my throne, has consumed me. What he means by that is, it has consumed my thinking. And when you consume somebody, somebody's thinking is consumed with something, it dictates their actions. We do what we do because we are what we are. That's where it starts. And so that dictated his actions, his zeal. Now, we're going to trace that word zeal all the way back to the book of Numbers. And it's going to be just a blessing, I hope, for you to see how that's traced through the Scriptures and moves all the way to the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ. But suffice it to say right now that this was prophesied. Specifically. Not in just one place, but several places. But if you want to look at a specific prophecy, let's go to Malachi. And you might want to put that in the margin of your Bible next to this account in John in Malachi chapter 3 turn with me there if you will let's just go look at that directly in Malachi chapter 3 Jesus appears you remember this is uh, the um, um, the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament time passes 400 years not a word of prophecy he comes on the scene and all of a sudden not, not only God is not only is God speaking God's appeared and in His appearing, is speaking directly to these people. But look what it says in Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I will send My messenger, and he will prepare the way before Me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to, the, to His temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. And He will sit as a refiner and as a purifier of silver. And He will purify who? The sons of Levi. And purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. He's there at the temple. 
He's cleansing the temple, not completely, just as a preview of coming attractions. He will do that in His second coming. But what is the precursor? What has to happen before the temple can be cleansed? This God of covenant has to cleanse individual people with His blood. You remember, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant have no hope of fulfillment except for the what? The new covenant. So as a precursor to what He's going to eventually do in cutting the new covenant by His blood, He cleanses the Levitical temple, the Levitical priesthood. Remember, it says He will cleanse the sons of Levi. That's who's in charge here. That's who's exploiting the people. That's who's lining their pockets and preventing worship. They're the ones that are keeping people from God. And Jesus is very rightfully upset about it. They are wielding money and power and control. Because he who controls the purse strings usually controls everything else. If you want to tr- find out where the corruption lies, just trace the money. Because somewhere or another, it'll be there. His boldness here is remarkable. It's remarkable that they didn't arrest him and go ahead and take him out already. But the reason he didn't is because the crucifixion happened in God's timing, not man's. But the Jewish leaders never forgot Jesus' assault on the heart and center of their religious enterprise and the very seat of their power. As a matter of fact, He cleansed the temple twice. That's what tells me. I'm convinced there were two cleansings, and here's why. It indicates to me that they the first cleansing happened and the second cleansing happened and the second cleansing happened because they learned nothing from the first one. They rejected Him at the beginning of His ministry and they rejected Him at the end of His ministry culminating in His crucifixion and suffering on the cross. They didn't learn a thing. Another example of God's patience, God's long-suffering, God's mercy. This was a verbal assault on their hypocrisy. And this was more than enough combined with everything else motivation for them to pursue His crucifixion so vehemently. them to go to Him and ask Him for a sign was once again a way for them to distract away from the real issue. And that was their sin. It's amazing. It witness encounters. Somebody wants to go and talk about what about the people in Madagascar who have never heard. How many times does that come up in witnessing? Stuff like that. You know what that is? It's just a distraction. It's a technique used by the devil to lead unrepentant people to distract away and call attention away from their sin, which is the real issue. So you patiently endure that, and then you gently and kindly and lovingly get back to the real issue, and that's the cross and the reason for it. Christ died for our sin according to the Scripture. So get this. (laughs) We've got Jesus... We've got him coming in there. And this is this is the epicenter, I'm convinced, of this cleansing and the one that followed it, which are both precursors to the one that will completely be accomplished at his return when they repent. And it's this. Here you are profiting. Here you are exploiting people 
for own your own self-interests when I am going to give my life so they can worship. Nobody could be offended like he did over this because nobody paid the price for his bride like he did. Nobody could. Nobody would. And if anybody would, they couldn't because it wouldn't be accepted. Think of it. He's there by himself, the Father, and he sees this. We're flying high now, and he's seeing this. And we can say, oh, he's just upset about exploitation of people. People being exploited, especially the poor. Was he upset about that? Absolutely. But the context is this. My Father deserves all worship. And the only means by which He's going to get it, the worship He deserves in spirit and in truth, is by reconciling lost men and women to Himself. And the only way that it's going to be reconciled is not by me paying a monetary price. The only way they're going to be reconciled is that I'm going to lay down my life. So I lay down my life for worship and you're exploiting worship. Thus, offended. And should be. There's no sacrifice involved in you guys. For you, this religious system is anything but sacrificial. This religious system that you've concocted, which is false, not only is not sacrificial, it is self-serving. Period. That's what it's all about. This shores up your reputation, your your, uh, self-esteem, to elevate yourself above other people. This shores up your bank account. This shores up your standing. And it's cover for your rank and file hypocrisy. And I'm going to remove every bit of that. And these people will worship through my blood. I remember Peter Lord. I love... Him. I don't know if he's still around or not, but he said one time, and I've told you this before, but he said it tongue-in-cheek. He's a real, got a real good sense of humor. used to pastor in Titusville, Florida, the church down there. And he's, got, he's real funny, the substantive. And he said one time he was getting on a plane um, in uh, Florida to fly somewhere to go speak somewhere, and he looked up there, and the Florida lottery had gone up to $60 million. And he was cutting up. He was kidding around. And he said, Lord, uh, if you'll give me the numbers for the Florida lottery... That wouldn't be gambling because if you give me the numbers, it's a sure thing. And I'll play the numbers and win the sixty thousand dollars, sixty million dollars, and give it all to missions. He was just cutting up, eating, you know. And so he got on the plane, and the Lord spoke to him. He said, "En route on his flight," and he said, "If I thought money would change the world, I would have sent money instead of my son." I'm telling you. He's saying, I'm going to spin myself because I am obsessed that the Father be worshipped. I am really upset about this gap that has been created by men's sin and rebellion. And they can't do a thing about it. And they're helpless and hopeless. But I've come to do something about it. And I am going to be the repairer of the breach I am going to be the reconciler. And I'm going to bring lost men and women, hopeless boys and girls into a relationship with the Father, into sweet communion, and I'm going to do it by the spending of myself. I will hold nothing back. And you're pilfering off of these people.
I'm offended. My Father deserves to be worshipped. By the way, isn't it fitting that after we see the bride and the betrothal pictured in the wedding miracle and we unpack all of that about Jesus and we've been betrothed to Him and that until the marriage is consummated, the marriage supper of the Lamb, what is He doing? Preparing a house. Remember? That's what the that's what the the groom does. He gets a house ready at his expense so that when he gets his bride, she's got a place fit to live. That house is in heaven. And when Jesus comes down on earth, it's going to be brought down here. And it's going to rest right where that temple is. That's the house. And it needs to be cleansed. And the only agent of cleansing will do is His blood. Is His blood. That's the context. That's where we are. And he, and the disciples. Think about this, guys. The disciples. You know, we can write them off a lot of times. And I've done this. I'm guilty of this. I write them off as saying, Some, they, they acted so goober-headed sometimes. And then I realize, they're not near as goober-headed as I am. Not near. But sometimes they would have these profound moments where you just go, wow. And this is one of them. Because you remember, these guys were saved because they were looking forward and believed in the Old Testament promises concerning the Messiah. And when they met Him, they received Him. They recognized Him. And in this instance, think about this. It says, look at verse 17, Then His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Color me impressed. <laughs> you know, with all that they've done, he, they're arguing for position in the kingdom and who's going to sit on his right hand. They're doing all these things. He tells them about his death and it goes right over their head on occasions in the scriptures. It goes, shush. He said, by the way, before all this happens, I'm going into Jerusalem. I'll be falsely accused, brought up on false charges, scourged, beaten, spit upon, and crucified. And then three days later, I raised from the dead. And then they go off talking about something completely different. As if they, as if it just went shh, just in one ear and out the other. But right here, the Holy Spirit moved upon them. And Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. It means that it speaks concerning the Messiah. Written hundreds of years before this happened. And the Holy Spirit reminds them. Can I say this to you and encourage you with something? Johnny's a computer engineer. He knows this to be true. Garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you put in is what you'll get out. And and that's what happens when Christians are tempted. Whatever you've been putting in, when you're squeezed, it's what's going to come out. When you squeeze an orange, you get orange juice. When you squeeze a Spirit-led Christian, you get the Scriptures because they've been put in. And these Scriptures were put into their hearts. Somehow or another, these simple fishermen, these simple men, and that Scripture was put into them and they knew that Psalm 69 was a Messianic Psalm. And when they saw that, they said, there's the zeal that's spoken of in Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is quoted seven times in the New Testament. It's big, prominent. If you read it, I, I tell you what will be a blessing to your life is to go home maybe this afternoon and read Psalm 69. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. 
Though I've done nothing wrong, it says, I still must restore it. Jesus is standing in their midst and saying, I've done nothing wrong. This is, far, this is not my doings. But I'm going to take it on as if it is, and I'm going to repair the damage that's been done. Hallelujah. I'm so proud of Him, aren't you? So they say, oh, this fits together. This is what Psalm 69 said about Him. This is the manifestation of Psalm 69. And indeed it was. Indeed it was. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 8, verse 1, will you? I told my dear wife this week, I'm reading through the Bible again in my personal Bible time. And I just finished Zechariah. And I told her, I said, well, my favorite book in the Bible is Zechariah now. It's kind of the way it works, isn't it? <laughs> your favorite book is the one you're studying at the time. There's going to be a rebuilt temple. <laughs> it says that in Ezekiel. If you fit everything together and put and see how it's played out, there is a earthly temple that is specifically spoken of in Ezekiel. Specifically, I cannot bring myself—not that I want to—to to write that off as allegorical. That, that it is so specific. Go read it. Starts in chapters, I think, 37, all the way to the end of it. It speaks of the temple, its dimensions, all kind of all kind of specifics about the temple. And this temple is the temple that will exist in Christ's earthly reign when he returns. And God has his eye on that nation. And he has his eye on that mount, and he has on that city. Jerusalem, and he has his eye on that mount, and he has his eye on that temple, and he's razor focused for it. And this is what his disposition toward that is. Look at it; it's all over the Bible. And the word of the Lord of the hosts, verse one, came saying, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor. I am zealous for her." Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Listen to this. And Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth <laughs> and the mountain of the Lord of the hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, straight from His mouth, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. And thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of these people in these days, will it not also be marvelous in my eyes? Says the Lord of hosts. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. This is how Jesus is speaking when He says, Zeal for this has eaten me up. It has so consumed me that I have committed that I will come down here and lay down on the cross in order to purchase this promise. And you're over here pilfering and lying in your pockets, sacrificing nothing for that, but serving only your self-interests. You know, we said last week, let me close right now, but that's up. That's looking up in this text. It's a preview of coming attractions. This temple... Took 46 years to build. This is this is the post-exilic temple. This is the temple that was built after the Babylonian exile when they came back. And Zerubbabel, you remember, and Joshua the high priest, and they were called upon to build the temple. You remember what was going on? And Haggai gave the prophecy and said, "You know what? You built your houses back, but the temple lays in ruin. Finish the job." And Zechariah comes, and there it is, and he's saying, "Finish it. Finish the work." Well, Herod took upon this project and did, and made something magnificent out of it. That's the temple that existed when Jesus did this. But as a preview of coming attractions, He's coming again. And there's going to be a temple that will put this one to shame. And it will be built and it will be put on that mount and Jesus will sit on the throne of David. Hallelujah. And we will be there reigning with Him. And as a preview of coming attractions, He's saying, before this can ever happen, there's got to be a cross. Before there's ever a crown, there's a cross. Ought not Christ to have suffered and then to enter His glory? So He's given us a preview of coming attractions, but He's saying there's a cleansing that's got to take place. You come in here and this kind of communion has to take place with cleansing. There has to be a clean bride. Sin has to be dealt with. I'm serious about this, the Lord says. So serious that I will take the measures necessary in order to deal with the sin problem. And that would be my substitutionary atoning brutal death on the cross. And we said last week, we'll not be guilty. Lord willing, we don't want to ever be guilty for sacrificing the truth for the sake of unity. But everything else is up for grabs. We're to be willing to sacrifice everything else for the sake of it. Except the truth. But everything else is up for grabs. We look at this. We should have the same... Attitude. Witnessing can be understood in a lot of ways. We want to see people delivered. We want people to see them saved from the wrath to come. Warn them. The ark is still open. The door is still open. There's still an opportunity. Today is a day of salvation, right? We're we're ministers of reconciliation. When you take up Paul's language in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians eleven, we're matchmakers. I love that. We're trying to put together, we can't do it, but introduce someone to Jesus so they can be married to Him in a salvation relationship. To betroth, be betrothed to Him. We're ones who are about repairing the breach. We're ones who are willing to stand in the gap and make up the hedge before the land that He might not destroy it. We're the ones that call for peace. That you can have peace with God. Because right now, there's hostility between you and God. 
in order to terrify you that you're now His enemy. But guess what He does with His enemies? He loves them and saves them through the cross. So there are many ways that we can be seen. We can talk about it and understand it. But this is the bottom line. We're dispatched by God to recruit worshipers. I'm convinced of this. God deserves to be worshipped. God alone deserves to be worshipped. And we have a holy offense in our hearts when He's not. We have a holy offense in our hearts when He's spoken of in the wrong way. When a lie is told about Him. We have a holy offense. David said, I hate every false way. That's what David said. I hate every false way. You and I hate when the gospel is perverted. We hate it. You and I hate the prosperity gospel because it's a perversion of the gospel. We don't dislike it. We hate it. Why? Because it's only the true gospel through which God recruits worshipers and our God deserves to be worshipped. And Jesus was saying, that's so important to me, I will give my life for it to happen. As a matter of fact, only in the giving of my life will it happen. And that, you want to talk about out? That's our practical application. How concerned are you and I that God be worshipped? How concerned? Are we going to hold on to our self-indulgence? Are we going to hold on to our self-serving? That makes us in the Pharisee camp. For them, Christianity? Hey, listen, in the circles I traveled in when I was growing up, I was commended for Christian faith. It wasn't a cost involved in it. It was a... It was a looked upon favorably. And then you get and put it in environs in which it's not. And then, for your benefit and mine, we find out whether or not our Christianity is real. You know what? We don't pay a cost to get saved. But there's a cost to pay for sanctification. And that's paid because of the price that was paid for us. And it's empowered by the one who paid it. It is a life of self-denial. It is a life of self-sacrifice. But when we sacrifice and self-deny, we find life. That's when you start living. It's the paradox. You want to keep your life, you'll lose it. You want to lose it for my sake and the gospel, you'll keep it. Up to you. And Jesus said, worship is so important to me that my Father be honored. I'll spill my blood on Calvary. I will let Him strip me naked falsely accuse me, spit on me, pluck out my beard, put a crown of thorns on my head, and publicly put me in shame and disgrace on a trash heap outside the streets of Jerusalem and be brutally sacrificed so that the Father be worshipped by you. And then we hold on to our little whatever. We hold on to what? 
I preached a message one time to a group of guys. We got together for a devotion time. And a matter of fact, I was talking to a friend of mine, a fellow pastor this week about this. And I'm just enamored with, and always will be, I hope, with the conversion of the thief on the cross. To me, there's not a better conversion in the Bible that illustrates salvation truth than the conversion of the thief on the cross. How clear is it? He's cussing at Jesus, just like the other guy. You blank, 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 blank. You know? But while he's up there, and he's suffering, he's watching the suffering of Jesus. Now, we don't know if he ever had any encounter with Jesus while before that moment. But I believe we can live from this. That he got converted, not by watching Jesus live, but by watching him die. And God wants to slay us so that His Son can be seen. We need to get out of the way. And we don't need to be stealing His glory. We don't need to clamor for His glory. We say, no, no, wait, wait, uh, don't give me any credit. I don't deserve any. I, I, don't, I don't deserve any. Don't give me any. Don't give me. Stop it. Get up. Don't fall down before me. We'll get all get in trouble. We worship Him. And we point Him toward Him. That sometimes commands us. That means there's a commanded call for sacrifice. Not to get saved, but because we are. And to let go of our right to be right all the time. To love people when we're not loved in return. To forgive when we're treated badly, falsely accused, or betrayed even. All of those things. That's the death that this thief watched him die. And it occurred to him by the Holy Spirit. This man has done nothing wrong. We're getting what we deserve, but he's done nothing wrong. In other words, he's dying for me. He is dying in my place. Lord, would you remember me when you come into the kingdom? (laughs) He turned around to him and says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. How zealous are you and I that God be worshipped? How concerned are we about that? That His name and His renown be known and His name be glorified and He's given the rightful glory that He is due. Well, you know what? We're completely concerned with it now. That is our concern. That our God be worshipped, looked to, and trusted as Lord and Savior. Zeal! For that has consumed me. And the reason it's consumed me is it absolutely controls my thinking. It is my obsession. And in controlling my thinking, it now controls my actions. Just like it did, my Lord. Because that same zeal, I don't try to emulate. That same zeal I received the day I got saved. It's the same zeal. It's not trumped up by you and I. It's the same zeal. Let's worship Him. And then let's ask Him to use us to recruit worshipers. And Lord, let that consume me. Because You've consumed me. I'm lost in love. I'm done. I'm over with. I don't live for myself anymore. I've been free. I don't own anything. I don't have a reputation to protect. i got nothing. I got him, and because I got him, I got everything.
that communion so valuable to Jesus, He gave His life for it. Lord, thank You for giving Your life for that. And now, for the cause of the Gospel, there is a call for us to yield our life. Not to get saved. But for the glorious reality of our salvation and our absolute amazement at the means by which it has come to us. And that would be the death of your son. Him laying down his life on Calvary, that sweet brow. Remember when the anointing oil was put on his precious head, ran down his cheeks, that smell. And that woman that did that said, you know what, I'm going to spend and be spent. This, this oil means nothing compared to the precious head upon, it, upon which it rests. And that surely when he was on the cross, he could smell that oil. It helped him up there because he knew, he said, that's how this offering and this sacrifice is viewed by my Father. It's a sweet-smelling aroma. It's been accepted. He'll raise me from the dead shortly. And everybody who's been killed by sin will be resurrected and raised with me. And because I live, they'll live. Bless your holy name.